This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our guest, Leonard Downey Jr. He is the former executive editor of The Washington Post and the author of a number of books. His latest, All About the Story, News, Power, Politics, and The Washington Post. He joins us to discuss campaign 2020 in these remaining weeks, his career in journalism, and the state of American media. Let me begin on that point, because we now have more sources of news than ever before. Social media giving everyone a platform to share information and points of view. And in the introduction of your book, Len Downey, you write the following, quote, Journalism seeks truth and holds power accountable when doing so is most difficult but also most needed. And so my opening question, where are we today? It's a real mix today. Uh, What I said in the book still holds true. Uh, Many news organizations, uh, big and small, from the New York Times and the Washington Post and uh, other major newspapers and broadcast networks, uh, on down to uh, uh, new uh, uh, nonprofit startups, websites in places around the country and state capitals and, and in towns and cities, are doing exactly that, exactly what I said in the book. And in fact, even for those newspapers around the country whose staffs have been shrunk terribly uh, by economic change and now COVID, uh, they still seem to have uh, reporting that holds power accountable as a high priority. You look at you look at what wins the prizes in journalism, you'll see that happening all across the country, which is a very encouraging sign. While at the same time, I'm very worried about the about how many of those will remain in existence as we go forward uh, because of the uh, changes in the, in, in the economy. You look at the pace of the news cycle over the last uh, year, from the impeachment of President Trump to coronavirus to Black Lives Matter to the death of George Floyd and, of course, more recently, the death of Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. All of this coming in the middle of an election. Yes. It's a very challenging time for the news media uh, to keep all those balls in the air at the same time and also to examine for themselves their own diversity and their own approach to news coverage. Are they covering the people who, uh, who, who need most coverage, the people who are suffering the most in the pandemic economically, who've lost their jobs, who are diff- having difficulties uh, schooling their children, uh, who, are, who are the people who are not benefited by uh, the, the tax changes during this administration, uh, as well as, uh, as, well as um, people of color uh, who tend to be more the victims of COVID than others and who tend to suffer more from uh, job dislocation uh, than the rest of the population. Those are a lot of balls to keep in the air while at the same time covering the obvious big stories like Supreme Court appointments, the election, etc. And now I think there's a a very new and important uh, challenge uh, to the news media, particularly in local news media around the country, which is covering voting, which is already underway, uh, and uh, mail voting, early voting, and then voting on Election Day itself, and then the counting of the votes, where the, uh, the president has challenged uh, the, uh, the, the, the validity of the election, indeed, uh, and where we know there are going to be problems with people trying to vote in some places and, and questions about how the counting is going. And most of that is done around the country in states and cities and counties. And so local news media are going to have a terrific responsibility in the remaining weeks before and after the election and covering that accurately and keeping people well informed and making sure that the democracy is working properly. 
one of the key stories this year, and you write about it in the book, The Underlying Issue of Race in America. You remember the riots here in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in the country following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King back in 1968. Where are we today, and have we reopened uh, a wound that has been part of our country, really going back to slavery? Yeah, it's a, it's a failing of the country going back to slavery uh, that uh, that racial differences remain. Right? There, are, there are serious racial issues remaining in this country, and many people don't even want to recognize that. Uh, but it's, it's it's come to the fore uh, with uh, with the with the police shooting incidents and and uh, and and the uh, the differences in uh, in how COVID is affecting the population, for example. Uh, and so it's a reminder that this is an unsettled aspect of the American dream, and it's really important for the news media to be covering it thoroughly. We are just weeks away from the November 3rd election, early voting already underway in many states across the country. What is your overall assessment of the race as you look at the polls, the first two debates, and where things stand? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't express political opinions, even though I'm no longer the editor of the of the Washington Post. I, I stopped voting during the 24 years that I ran the Washington Post newsroom because as the final gatekeeper for what went in his newspaper and influenced other news organizations. I didn't want to make up my mind who should be president or mayor of Washington, D.C. or anything else. And uh, I've sort of kept that habit. I, I now vote, but I, I'm registered as no party in the District of Columbia. Uh, and so I don't vote in the primaries. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I, I and, and also I'm, I'm, I'm wary. I, I'm not covering this. So I, I'm always wary about expressing uh, uh, views about things that I'm not at, at, you know, covering closely. I read it closely, but I'm not amongst the great political reporters at The Washington Post, for example, who know so much more than I do. Uh, it, clearly, it's a volatile race. Uh, last time, uh, four years ago, the polls were wrong. The, pre- the pre-election polls were wrong. So I don't know if they're going to be right again this time, uh, right instead this time. Uh, so I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit, definitely a very volatile election, a very important one. Len Downey, let me pick up on the issue of polling because it has really become a staple in American political coverage. But are there too many polls, too much discussion about the horse race journalism rather than issue-oriented journalism when it comes to these candidates? I think polls are still very valuable, and I think that lessons have been learned from polling difficulties in previous elections so that uh, they're being more carefully done. It's, you know, it, it, the polling, polling firms had to make the change from predominantly landlines to predominantly mobile phones, for example, so it's harder to get the mix of different kinds of demographics that you need for an accurate poll. I think a lot of adjustments have been made. And also I think that more of the information coming from polls is less, in addition to the horse race, is more about what people feel about the issues. Uh, and what their lives are like. And if you, read the, if you read those aspects of the polls, and the media is covering those aspects better than they used to. Of course, they have the, the top-line horse race result, but they also dig deep into the polls, and you begin to see how different kinds of Americans are reacting differently to the issues involved in the race. And that actually, to me, is more helpful uh, than the top-line horse race poll because that will be decided on Election Day. You quote Catherine Graham in her memoir, Personal History, in your book when you served as the executive editor of The Washington Post. What was the biggest challenge? What kind of pushback did you get from official Washington, Democrats or Republicans? 
Um, you know, one of my um, priorities for The Washington Post was, as you said earlier, uh, coverage uh, and investigations that held uh, people in power accountable. And whenever those, those kinds of uh, stories were uncomfortable for people in power, I would get pushback. So, for instance, uh, when we were leading uh, the investigations of the Clintons, both their activities in, in uh, Arkansas when he was governor there and, and she was the uh, chief lawyer for a savings and loan that went bust, and cost the government a lot of money. And uh, after they were in Washington, when uh, investigations began of the of the president's relationships with other women, uh, I was the first editor in the country to uh, put Monica Lewinsky and the fact that uh, uh, the special prosecutor's uh, investigation was expanded to include the president's relationship with her on the front page of the Washington Post. And uh, it was clear to me that the Clintons didn't like what I was doing. Uh, but similarly, uh, during... Uh, the run-up after 9-11, during the run-up to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, when the Post was uh, uh, trying to do its best to hold the administration accountable for what turned out to be false justifications for the war in Iraq, uh, I was hearing from them. Uh, and the same thing with other administrations. It was always, always pushed back when they didn't like what the coverage was, and you just have to resist that. You have to listen to make sure that you're being fair and accurate. Uh, and and uh, but if if if, uh, if if you think you are, uh, then you have to be resistant to pressure. Well, in the book, you mentioned the former Secretary of State Colin Powell and his speech before the U.N. back in 2003. In a subsequent interview after he left office with Al Jazeera, he talked about that moment. But it turned out, as we discovered later, that a lot of the sourcing that had been attested to by the intelligence community was wrong. Uh, Imagine how I felt the day that uh, they finally came in and said to me, well, you know, we don't have four independent sources for that biological warfare van. It's one guy, and he's loopy, and he's in a German jail, and we've never talked to him. Hello? And I'm sitting there stuck with this. I felt terrible. And six months later, the intelligence community is still standing behind their original judgments, even though nothing has been found. I understood the consequences of that, of that failure. And as I've said on many occasions, I deeply regret that the information, some of the information, not all of it, some of the information I presented, which was multi-source, was wrong. And it is a blot on my record. That from former Secretary of State Colin Powell. As you hear that, Len Downey, your thoughts. Well, it was also a blot on my record, as I write in the book. My biggest mistake uh, in running the Washington Post was while we were doing reporting that raised issues about the uh, administration's justification for going to war in Iraq, weapons of mass destruction, et cetera, uh, and, and including several stories that we did in the paper the day after Colin Powell's testimony that raised issues, experts raised issues about each aspect of his testimony. Uh, Most of those stories were inside the paper. I just assumed that people were so consumed with coverage of the war that they would find all those stories inside the paper uh, while the breaking news was on the front page. And that was a mistake. I should have put more of those stories in the front page. It would not have changed the march to the war, but uh, the record, my record would have been better if I had given those stories more attention. So what is the lesson? What would you have done differently in terms of the editorial process? I, I would have done two things. I would have, I was a very hands-on editor, sometimes to the to the irritation of the editors who worked under me and the reporters. I roamed the newsroom getting my nose involved in almost everything that was going on, going into the newspaper, and I did not 
spend enough time focusing on that. I did not go over and bother those reporters and those editors more uh, when they were eager, obviously, to get there to get more uh, dis- more display for what they were doing and to get my attention to it. I was so focused on what the administration was doing, on uh, on very good reporting we were doing about the kind of war they were going to conduct, which turned out to be a mistake, uh, and and other things that were that were good, uh, good journalism. Uh, but um, I, I I didn't pay enough attention to that. So I, I would have I would have paid much more attention to that. I would give more display to those stories, uh, and uh, and I, I'm sorry that I didn't. And, of course, you were clearly on the front lines of one of the biggest stories that The Washington Post ever covered, if not the biggest, the Watergate investigation. And let me take you back to August 8th, 1974, in this announcement from then-White House Press Secretary Ron Ziegler. I'm aware of the intense interest of the American people and of you in this room concerning developments today and over the last few days. This has, of course, not been a diff- has been a difficult time. The President of the United States will meet various members of the bipartisan leadership of Congress here at the White House early this evening. Tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, the President of the United States will address the nation on radio and television from his Oval Office. That from then Press Secretary Ron Ziegler and Lynn Downey, that was the culmination of an investigation that was two years and two months in the making. Right. That was the investigation of Watergate, which began uh, with um, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and some other reporters and editors at The Washington Post. I had just uh, come back from a leave of absence to become the number two editor on the local news staff, which is where the story was covered because the break-in of the Watergate was a local story. Uh, and uh, I gradually worked my way into uh, the chain of command, working on those stories until starting in 1973, roughly just before the Senate Watergate hearing began. I was the lead editor for uh, the Watergate coverage until the president's uh, resignation. Uh, it, in, the, in the beginning, during those early months, uh, uh, for most of 1972, we were all alone in the story. There was no Internet then. There was no cable television then. The Washington Post was circulated only in Washington. Uh, and so uh, a lot of people either didn't pay any attention to what, what our coverage was or because the administration was constantly attacking the Post for it and attacking Ben Bradley personally about it. Um, uh, some people just didn't, simply didn't believe it. And in fact, most of the political reporters in Washington, including those in our own staff, didn't believe it for many months because it just was so so impossible to imagine that the President of the United States would be involved in the way he was in the cover-up of the break-in. Uh, and so it, it was when Walter Cronkite, uh, you devoted um, the first half hour, for the first half of his half-hour newscast uh, towards the end of October one evening to Watergate to call the, the nation's attention to our coverage of Watergate, holding up front pages of the New York Times on tel- of the Washington Post on television, uh, that, um, uh, that, that other other journalists became interested in it, and, and it was the first time, in fact, the only time during my career when I was happy to have competition. That we were no longer alone under attack by the administration, but we had Seymour Hersh of the New York Times and some of the news magazines and others competing with us uh, for uh, in the, in the investigative reporting, and and uh, and and, and uh, I think that was a, that was a good thing for once. How different would that story be today with uh, cable news, with social media, Fox, CNN, MSNBC? I'm often asked that question, and it's impossible to imagine. It certainly wouldn't have taken two years. 
uh, and I don't know what uh, how what the Nixon administration might have been able to uh, to create uh, in uh, in you know what are now right wing uh, um, cable cable news networks and uh, and uh, websites and and, uh, and and radio shows and so on. What kind of opposition and uh, to the coverage and protection of the president they might have been able to gain? So it probably would have become a much more a, a big political issue a lot earlier. Uh, and uh, I just I just don't know what would have happened. It, it clearly would not have been anywhere near the same. During an oral history that he taped back in 2006, uh, former editor Ben Bradley, speaking to the museum about the Watergate investigation. The very first uh, the first day or two, the, uh, the uh, our police reporter Al Lewis got the the address book of one of them. I mean that that's a, that's why the New York Times had trouble with the story because they didn't have a police reporter uh, and they didn't uh, uh, so they didn't have that book. But one of the names in the book was H. L. Hunt, which didn't uh, mean anything to anybody. But uh, when uh, when uh, when Woodward uh, calls Hunt and says, uh, well, "Why is your name in the book?" Uh, and uh, you know we're investigating, blah blah blah. And Hunt's answer was, "Oh my God!" And that gave you a sort of a, a hint that you were onto something. And then when it turned out that Hunt had, uh, you know, one time worked for the CIA and all this stuff, it just got better and better and better until. Uh, just before election, the story disappeared. We, we couldn't get a soul to talk to us. And then, of course, that changed in early 1973. Yes, as I said, in part because of the competition. Seymour Hersh of the New York Times broke the story about the hush money being paid to the burglars to keep their mouths shut, something we had not been able to get up to that point, uh, which was a nice breakthrough, and that led uh, Carl and Bob to redouble their efforts uh, and, and to break many more stories. And, and also, uh, I, I, it, I think it loosened up more sources uh, at once the election was over, uh, sources who were concerned about uh, about history uh, and about, the, uh, some, in some cases, their own skins as the investigation began to change from being only focused on the, on the burglary itself to being focused on did it lead to the White House or not under pressure from Congress. You chronicle in detail some of the other significant moments of the last uh, 40 to 50 years that you lived through and, and covered and edited while at the Washington Post. Let's turn to the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore. Hmm. Here is what the now late Tim Russert said. He, at the time, was the Washington bureau chief for NBC News about that election and the recount. I thought the election of 2000, uh, presidential election, would be the biggest story I'd ever cover until September 11th. That was an amazing night. Uh, I talked about the grease board and trying to make the sense electoral college. We stayed up all night. And then uh, the next morning went on the Today Show uh, without any rest and reported all day long. We thought it would be concluded by the end of the second day. Well, it went on for 35, 36 days. I'm often asked about my memories of that period. Uh, my own son asked me what my most complete memory was. And I think it was at the end when the Florida Supreme Court said, let's start counting again, full statewide recount. And Democrats and Republicans picked up their pens, picked up the ballots, and started counting. And a few days later, the United States Supreme Court said, stop counting. Time's up. And Democrats and Republicans dropped their pens and dropped the ballots. At both 
times they obeyed the order of the court. If you were a Gore supporter, you were outraged, a Bush supporter, you were elated at the final outcome. But I thought, where else in the world would this be resolved by the order of the court as opposed to tanks rolling down the street and soldiers with bayonet? That from Tim Russert of NBC News. He, of course, passed away back in 2008. And there are some that say we could see parallels in 2020 to what we saw in 2000 with Bush v. Gore, maybe even more so. Yes, I think that's uh, that's entirely possible, obviously, uh, depending upon you know, how, how the vote shapes out, in part because um, uh, unlike in 2000, there there will be uh, many more ballots to cover uh, to count rather after election day uh, because of all the mail in ballots around the country and because of and then there will be questions about that counting because of the issues that the president has raised false issues about the validity of, of mail in voting. Uh, of which there's much more now than there was back in back in 2000, um, and I, I, that uh, um, among other things that means that uh, not just the not just the American people need to be patient on election night uh, if the if the election is unresolved that night or if it lasts days or weeks after that to count it, but so so does the news media. We were completely unprepared in 2000 for what was going to happen. In the book, I write about how at 2:30 a.m. Uh, I was uh, standing near the national desk with the uh, up until that point, all editions of The Washington Post had an unresolved election. But we were being told that uh, Gore was about to concede to uh, to Bush uh, in Florida. Uh, and so for our final edition, we had a story literally on the presses. The plates were on the presses saying Bush had won the election. Uh, and uh, before the presses started, uh, we the, my managing editor and I, thanks to intervention by our national political editor raising issues about whether or not the count was done, um, we, we, on the back of a piece of paper, uh, wrote down what the vote margin was in Florida and how many votes were outstanding and realized at the very least there had to be a recount in Florida uh, and uh, and it was not clear who was going to win. And so I did something I never had to do any other time. I'd stop presses at various times, but I'd never call down to the press room and say, take all those plates off the press, destroy them, do not print any newspapers with those plates. We're going to have a story coming that's going to say the election's unresolved and there'll be a recount in Florida. We were completely unprepared for it. And then we were unprepared for all the weeks that, that followed uh, as we had a scramble to cover these two, these hordes of lawyers arguing with each other on the ground. The, the, we're learning about things like hanging chads and, and so on. Uh, the media is clearly much better prepared this time. Uh, the, the choke points are already, are already being well covered. What is happening with mail-in voting? Uh, there's much more early voting this time. What's happening with early voting? Uh, are there going to be attempts to intimidate voters? I think the news media will be ready for that. Uh, that that's another thing I think is going to be very important for local news media around the country who have less resources than the national media. But the voting takes place locally. The counting is going to take place locally. And so it's really important for local media to use whatever resources they can muster to follow that day in and day out until the election is resolved. So as you watch the returns come in on November 3rd, realizing there's a lot of early voting in so many states, what will you be looking for and what advice would you give to the networks? Well, I think the networks already are have made a decision. They're going to be much more careful about how to call the election. They're going to be uh, in, in discussing the results. They're going to be telling how much vote is outstanding in addition to how much vote has already been counted <clears throat> so that people have a better idea 
uh, of, of whether or not it has been it has been uh, what direction the election's heading in. I think they aren't going to call states. This used to be one another one of my jobs when I ran the newspaper was literally calling each state, deciding when the Washington Post would say that uh, Obama had won this state or or had lost that state. Uh, and uh, it was relatively simple then. We had really good exit polls to work with. We did not have a lot of outstanding mail votes around the country, uh, and uh, it was it was it was not difficult. I would hate to be doing that today. I'm glad that I don't have to do that today, uh, and uh, because it's going to be much more difficult, and, and you, people are going to have to be more patient. Uh, the, as I said, the networks aren't going to be patient. Uh, the rest of the news media will have to be patient. The American people have to be patient, unless for some reason it's a runaway one way or the other. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking to Len Downey Jr. He is currently a professor at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. And less than a year into George W. Bush's administration, of course, the consequential events on the morning of September 11th. Here's how the initial story evolved and developed on ABC with Charlie Gibson. It appears that the there is more and more fire and smoke enveloping the very top of the building. And... As fire crews are descending on this area, it, it, it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Just I did not see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming saw, in from the side. You did. I did that was out of absolute Yes, and that's view. the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway in downtown New York. That courtesy of ABC News and bringing fresh memories once again of that day. I was uh, walking into the Washington Post building having had breakfast with my publisher at the time uh, and was I was intending to go up to the publisher's floor, the seventh floor for the Tuesday morning meeting of the, uh, the, the leaders of the various parts of the newspaper on the business side and myself on the news side uh, when uh, my, uh, my assistant called me from home on my cell phone. I'm standing in the lobby. She's getting dressed at home to come into work and she saw the first plane hit the World Trade Center and told me that. So instead of going to the seventh floor, I rushed into the fifth floor newsroom uh, which at that time before there was a whole lot of internet activity uh, was still relatively quiet at that hour in the morning because we were a morning newspaper for the next morning uh, and uh, but there were the televisions were on and as soon as I walked in the newsroom I saw the second plane I just was it just what was described in ABC News I saw the second plane hit the other tower and knew that this had to be a terrorist attack uh, and there were news aides in the newsroom who were already trying to call New York. Call our, we had six or seven correspondents in New York, uh, and uh, they couldn't be reached. I called the national news editor at home, and she had already been trying to reach correspondents in New York and couldn't. Uh, and uh, without, and then as I as we tried to figure out how we were, and and then and then came the word that uh, the plane had hit the Pentagon, and you saw on television uh, smoke rising. And the way there are different, the networks have different television positions in Washington, uh, where the cameras show different parts of the city uh, from from different angles. And it looked like smoke was rising maybe over the Capitol, maybe over the White House, uh, until we realized it definitely was the Pentagon. But uh, uh, you, you wonder just how much how much the attack was affecting Washington. We did not yet know about the plane that had crashed into, in Pentagon. 
Pennsylvania into the farm field that may have been headed to the Capitol. Uh, and so uh, while I was uh, trying to decide how, how to proceed, trying to reach people, uh, uh, we had our, uh, our, our website operation was in northern Virginia at the time, so they actually could see what was going on in the Pentagon from the roof of the building that they were at. While I'm doing all that, people started streaming into the newsroom. Everybody who could possibly work came into the newsroom. Bob Woodward, who was working on a book, came into the newsroom, did investigative reporting. There was the first report that the intelligence services believed Osama bin Laden was behind the attack. Uh, other noted journalists like David Marinus came in from writing books. Uh, the, uh, the head of one of our copy desks, uh, uh, who had broken her arm in several places a few days before, was told by her doctor to stay home, insisted on coming into work, insisted on not leaving until we were uh, for days after for several days until we were uh, we, we were in, in better shape and uh, and then the uh, managing editor Steve Call and I divided up uh, leadership responsibilities he he immediately set out to to, uh, uh, to tear up that day's newspaper uh, and put out an afternoon uh, edition an extra edition uh, about what had happened I then got, got to work on the next day's newspaper and then we also consulted with our investigative editor uh, to begin the investigation investigative reporting of how did this happen was there an intelligence failure uh, is there a problem with airline security all the things that we now knew were problems and have been addressed since then uh, we were again working on right on that same day. All of this recounted in the new book, All About the Story, by Len Downey Jr. You also teach at the Walter Cronkite School, and back in 2005, we sat down and talked with him. I asked him what advice he would give to future journalists. I think that it's very important. They should read the newspapers. They should read the news magazines. They should watch television news where it's a responsible news. Uh, and uh, and radio, if that's uh, effective in their communities today, uh, they they in other words should should sample all the media, not sample it, but in uh, swallow it all, and indulge in it, uh, because each of those mediums has something important to communicate. The same is uh, is true of those organizations on the internet that are authentically journalistic and not just personal opinions. Uh, if they're authentically journalistic, then they're very important as well. So, so they should take in all of the sources of information. They should be hungry for information, thirsty for information, desperate for information. And that from legendary anchor Walter Cronkite in a 2005 interview, the full interview available on our website at cspan.org. Len Downey, as you hear that, your thoughts? That's, first of all, that's excellent advice. Uh, just absolutely excellent advice. Uh, uh, journalists should make themselves as well as well informed as possible. Uh, and uh, and to think about what it is that they are hearing and reading, uh, and what and what that may mean in terms of the of the, whatever their assigned responsibilities are. Are there ideas for stories there? Uh, it also gives them perspective on whatever it is they're working on. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a local reporter in in uh, in one city, uh, but you are uh, you're you're reading about the uh, uh, you know police shooting of of an African American person in another city, uh, that should lead you to think about well, wait. When 
my city, how, what, what, are, what are the relationships like in my city between the local community and the police, for example? It's very important for journalists to be very well informed about factual journalism, uh, but, but, uh, but to be very wary of, of opinion and being swayed by opinion, which is now all around them on the Internet. All about the story, news, power, politics, and the Washington Post, Leonard Downey Jr. How many years at the Post? Forty-four. We thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington for C-SPAN's The Weekly. We thank you for listening. <laughs>